This is James M. Ward here, and D&D experts like myself love listening to the Save or Die podcast because I learn something new every time I tune in. You passed through the door to find a small room filled with gold and jewels and a red dragon. He starts to breathe. Save or die! Welcome to the Save or Die Podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Bring on your goblin holes and band of oats, hawking zombies and bows, and oh no, no, troll, don't slow me down, oh no. Don't dig a Good. <laughs> yes, now. Otherwise, Vince might have to make a show out of it. Salam, everyone. Welcome to 105 Save or Die Podcast. <laughs> I is DM Mike, as usual. And with me is the DM, only DM I know, who used to be a part-time belly dancer, DM Liz. Hi. <laughs> Not professionally, have you know. No, it's more of a hobby. <laughs> that was my mind being blown. <laughs> and that was... The only DM I know who has given up DMing for belly dancing, DM Jim. Well, now you might well think so, but I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> I have so, no recollection of that at this time, Senator. Uh, sorry, just getting ready for House of Cards Season 3 to drop. Ah. Yeah, our DM's really going nuts about that, too. So, As Liz would have known if she had been at the aborted game yesterday, but oh well. Yes, I'm just ruining everything for everybody. With no, this. no, Ray, she bailed too, so it was just me chasing Tim, so we ended up watching the riff tracks of Hawk the Slayer. And I really wish I could have been there to see that, but... It was pretty cool. Damn you and your higher education! I know! <laughs> I'm sure Chase will play it again for you. <laughs> anyway, by popular demand, only <laughs> what... Uh, 17 episodes ago, <laughs> we are well, returning to Gazapalooza. It was scheduled for 101, but we bumped it for Zach. Mm-hmm. Then then Liz got all medieval on the emails, and it got bumped again. Yep. But we are here. We are talking the Emirates of Alarum. At least I think that's how it's pronounced. I'm sure people will call and write in and tell us. Yeah. And speaking of part-time, Liz will be bailing on the show after the emails, so the review will be me and Jim. Head to head. Arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Issue one. Because I think this was the Gazetteer of Ir Lamum. <laughs> <laughs> Don't beat around the bush, Jim. Tell us what you really think. No, no. Save it for, the, save it for later. Right. Because <laughs> now we have to talk about what have we been doing? What did we do at David this week? Who cares? Ow! And we'll start with Liz. 
<laughs> it has a direct impact on why she won't be on the show today. <laughs> what have I been doing in gaming? Nothing. <laughs> well, as lies. I as I have talked about on various occasions, you know, I'm in my final semester for getting my graphic design degree and I'm getting ready to do an exhibition which will be happening the first full week of April. So I've got huge deadlines to get a set minimum number of pieces. It has to be a minimum of eight ready to go and approved. So I've been working on that and I've really ramped it up the past couple of weeks. We have a review midterm critique of our stuff this coming Wednesday and it'll probably already be passed by the time this gets put up on the server for people to download and listen to but anyway I don't have to have you know things done but I do have to show real progress on all of my pieces that I am submitting so I've been scrambling to do that damn professors there have been a couple of pieces that I've been putting off working on because I just didn't want to, and now I'm having to try and put something together for those. Like the string cheese art? Yes, the string cheese art. Um, <laughs> How close are you exactly? Because I have 98% of a BFA. I, I, I even did the final show. I just didn't take that last four hours of French. I want to be able to wave to you as you go by me. <laughs> this is my final semester. And assuming that I pass all three classes that I am in, then I will have that BFA, and I will be walking across the stage in May. So and Jim can say, "This bon is it." <laughs> That's when I have to start saluting a superior officer. <laughs> yeah. well, I don't think I'll be a superior officer until I get some full-time work after this. But yeah. Okay. How about you, Jim? Oh, Lord. I got one uh, deadline boulder that's gaming-related off my shoulders, which feels great, and only five more to go, but uh, finished up and got everything taken care of for what will be the uh, world, the beginning of the World Tour 2015 at GaryCon, the uh, DCC tournament, the Hypercube of Might, which is uh, a really wonderful thing. Uh, it, it's technically not written by me, although I uh, am in charge of it. It's a uh, gestalt collaborative creation by a group of us that call ourselves the DCC Cabal. And uh, that includes uh, Jeffrey Tedlock, Adam Muscovich, Stephen Newton, myself, uh, Dak Ultimac, Daniel J. Bishop. And uh, it's pretty cool as character funnels go. Basically the premise is your village happens to be located in this gra grassy plain that centuries ago was uh, the personal estate of the Grand Vizier of a fallen kingdom. And all that's left of Midas the Mad's keep is a few flagstones laying in a field and this impenetrable 10 by 10 adamantite cube that's all vine covered. And it's been there so long, it's like Stonehenge. People just ignore it, except it's well known that every vernal equinox, the door is suddenly accessible. So they have a little celebration, a little spring celebration where the player characters sit around getting drunk, daring each other to go in, and then some decide to climb in. What is basically a tesseract. Mm. Wow. Because Liz, uh, Midas the Mad apparently stole some technology from the Castabaros galaxy. Ah. If you get the reference. <laughs> ask, ask me if the cube is bigger on the inside. <laughs> is the cube bigger on the inside? Oh, hella, hella big. <laughs> awesome. 
So that'll be uh, a team of us will be judging that at GaryCon. Uh, myself, uh, James Smith, uh, Roy Schneider, and Jen Brinkman, and uh, it should be a good time. We'll be we'll be running the same tournament at North Texas Con, so you'll get a, a swipe at it if you like. Cool. cool. <laughs> we say in unison. Cool. <laughs> and one more thing that happened that's never happened to me before. I was telling you guys uh, off air. Uh, Bob Brinkman's. Uh, ran the captain's table for Metamorphosis Alpha for his group this weekend, and because uh, Bob is a musician and an audio whiz, he created a custom soundtrack for the ca- captain's table that, uh, among other things, included a five-hour loop of, uh, as the module describes it, you get in the elevator and hear the wistful, otherworldly tunes of some lass from Ipanema. <laughs> And then you make saving throws against insanity. <laughs> That's not even the funny part. The funny part is, I mean, it's got sound effects and little Red Dwarf theme music, and I'm listening to the track while I was writing on Friday night, and uh, the, that five-hour loop started, and I didn't even notice, because I'm, <laughs> I'm used to, you know, being waiting on a con- being on hold on a conference call at work, and, you know, and you hear the music, and you're like, okay, well, while this guy's screwing around, let's get some work done. And before I knew it, an hour that music had gone by and I'd written a bunch of stuff. <laughs> wow. So That's your inspiration. I don't know. Don't try it at home, kids. <laughs> well, that about, sounds at least constructive. How about you, Mike? Well, I had a couple of things happen. Um, as some of you may know, the Kickstarter for Victorious launched this past week. Woohoo! Yeah, I was, I've been humbled and I'm thankful for everyone who's been willing to support um, to make the goal, it had to be at 3,500. It's currently at 14,260, and we've still got a lot, two or three more weeks to go. And, so uh, thank you, everyone who's been involved or been spreading the word. Liz and I have a side bet about where it ends up. Well, I'm hoping. I hope you're right, Jim. I, I <laughs> sincerely hope you're right. That One awesome. million dollars. <laughs> uh, we're, we're not going that crazy. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, good, because the amount of, uh, of stretch goals I'd have to write for that would just be, <laughs> my head would explode. Uh, but the only other thing, our 2E game has not met in two weeks, because the last Saturday I was ill, and since I couldn't make it, Liz couldn't make it, they just canceled the game. Then this past Saturday, I showed up, but the two girls, Liz and Ray, didn't show up, so we ended up, as I said, watching TV. Um. I did get in on a game of 5e online through a really odd set of circumstances. And I've asked him about it, and he's, he said it's okay, I tell. I'm a member of the OD&D Guild Yahoo group. I occasionally try and post over there. Somehow in Google, when I made a post, it stuck another person's email address on there. Now, about six years ago, I was trying to get some federal jobs, including at Homeland Security. I had a contact at Homeland Security who had connected with me through some professional uh, connections, for lack of a better term. (laughs) You realize you just triggered the NSA uh, web robots when they overhear what you just said. This this show will now be listened to by Homeland Security. Well, actually, it just might, because as I continue... It got. I kept this guy's email in my uh, contacts list in case I ever decided to try for jobs again. Somehow, Google put his address on the on the email when I sent my reply on ODNT Guild. 
And about five minutes later, he writes me back going, hi, Mike, haven't heard from you in a while. How did you know I played D&D? <laughs> I thought that was so awesome. <laughs> I didn't, but I'm glad you weren't upset. And he goes, oh, no. As a matter of fact, would you like to join me and some of the guys to game? <laughs> they had just moved from classic D&D to 5E, too, which was kind of kind of depressing Aww. on the other hand yeah but the dm was still running it like classic dnd because in a four-hour period i walked into two rooms then got caught in the middle of a hall and eaten by a purple worm thank you that is my point exactly it doesn't really matter what edition you play because you can run it however you want you can run it old school no so i never even got to engage in combat i just did a couple <laughs> other roles and then oh i i is eated but I just it was think fun. that is so awesome. Not only that he wrote you back to ask, how did you know, but he wrote you back so quickly. <laughs> it's like, wow, he's kind of excited about this, I think. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Well, he and the other guys, and I, I assume they're coworkers, <laughs> were all, you know, definitely very old school. I love it when stuff happens like this. I mean, one day, Dame Judy Dench just showed up at her grandkids' house and said, let's play D&D. And if the kids had asked her, where did you learn to play? She would have said, on the movie set, Vin Diesel taught me. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, so that's been pretty much my week between Victorious launching and this. Um, T-Man hasn't met in a couple of weeks. And it was Thursday night, so it's like I had to tell him, gee, T-Man, I'm going to have to bail on your game because i got a game with a bunch of guys from Homeland Security. You know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> He was understanding. So that's pretty much been my week, or two, as it were. Oh, Lord. Oh. Yep, and now we're going to head into emails. Emails. Get down, get down. Get down, get down. The Save or Die email hot tub time machine. Come here, you scrumptious little beauty. Here I go once again with the email. Every week, I hope that it's from a female. Oh, man. And we do have emails. Yes. And after today, we're only going to be four or five behind. Yeah. We're going like to keep it's... roughly a month behind on emails, which is pretty cool. Yes, well, now that you have said that, a whole bunch of people are going to write in just specifically to try to get us to get behind again. We can't have that. <laughs> it didn't take DM Kojo long to respond to our challenge. Yeah, I, I noticed. It was like, cool, cool. All righty. So, first email that we have is from Gregory McKenzie, and he writes, Dear Frog. Yes, he writes, Dear Save or Die. Tut, tut, I see you did not accept the gauntlet thrown down by Aaron Smale. Minus three to your saving throw. What, what gauntlet? Yeah, remember? You, you had insulted him, and the only way he demanded satisfaction was a duel, and if you refused the duel, then... Something you, for a return on the... Yeah, just submit for a project of Keep on the Borderlands, the expansion. I can't just say I'm sorry for whatever dumb thing I said. <laughs> that, that usually works. Uh, no, no, I think they want contributors. And I really need to send something over there. It's just, yeah, you keep saying that. Yeah, I know. I just keep getting buried. Anyway, he goes on to say, Well, to cheer you on, here's our next little installment, which is in the spirit of you never know what you'll get next. 
east of the realm as the crow flies, that is to say, a 25 by 25 hex monochrome map of the lands east of the realm, a mere fifth of the borderlands. Yes, monochrome, for we are deeply old schoolery. <laughs> At 25 miles per hex, the keep itself is represented by one hex. Accompanying this, you will find a bit of text, just enough to be inspiring and not so well-defined it resists customization. Good man. The names are generic enough, I think, to avoid over-flavoring it, taking a cue from The Realm, as that name is vague, so keeping in that spirit, nothing too off the grid. The hexes are numbered, so DMs can write and reference what might be in each hex, and where could that lost city of the Bordermen be located? Anyway, he includes a link, which I'm pretty sure we'll have we'll included the in the show notes. Um, Anyway, Briark.org, East of the Realm as the Crow Flies, and it's, anyway, it'll, it'll be in the links. <laughs> um, the map is provided in a hexographer format, so DMs everywhere may edit it as they please. I love that app, by the way. <laughs> the gauntlet remains on the floor, winking smiley face. As they say in Port Waterby, may you be back in Wildside an hour before the white apes know you've left the forest. All the best, DM Greg McKenzie, ye erroneous grog himself. Da da da. Did you did you go? Did you go to the link and check it out? It's pretty good. I did not go to the link. I've I've been really bad. I've done hardly anything for anything other than my BFA. But I will take your word for it. And those guys over on the OD&D group, they do good stuff. So <laughs> It was really – I mean, it was well done anyway, but it was extra sweet that he uh, gave you a download of the map and Hexographer because that's a, a cool little app. It's free, and it works on every OS imaginable. So cool. Mac, Mac, Windows, it doesn't matter. Splendid. So thank you, Greg, and maybe one of these days before we all die, Mike will send you something and <laughs> for the end of time. Honestly. <laughs> okay. Our next email is from James V. West. JV. JV. James. And this is regarding episode one oh three, skills. <laughs> Wait, that's just two episodes ago. Holy, I know. Holy crap. <laughs> we are almost current. Almost practically current. It's it's uncanny. Sodmasters! Great to hear a new episode, especially on Mike's favorite topic. <laughs> Regarding character versus player, I like the method used in Seven Voyages of Xylerthen for separating character and player intelligence. Basically, that a PC's intelligence score equals their knowledge, not their actual smarts. The player supplies the smarts. I think you guys covered that in a review of the game. Regarding thief skills, I've always thought of the thief's skills as an add-on mechanic to augment normal stealth rules. And that's how I play it. When a thief in my game fails to move silently, for example, it does not mean that the thief was actually heard. It simply means they did not move silently. I still make an additional D6 roll to determine the monster's hear noise results if necessary. And it's the same with any skill. If I would normally make a D6 roll when the fighter and wizard are trying to hide from goblins, then the thief would get a hide in shadows roll, and if the, if the roll failed, 
the normal d6 roll that everyone else gets. I used to assume that's how the game was intended, but I'm not sure that's true. It does go a long way toward resolving the whole my thief sucks issue and doesn't add complications or alter the existing skill tables. When you fall on skill systems, it is clear that there is a sharp divide between old school and modern gaming on the issue. The primary complaint I hear from gamers who play modern editions is that the older games, quote, lack options, end quote. The biggest refrain is, a fighter just rolls to hit, then rolls again, then again. Boring. But like Jim has said, that simply means you aren't being creative. Stop waiting for the game to play for you. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Thanks. Thanks, and keep up the great podcast, JV West. So, what well, do you thanks, think of JV. his? What do you think of his thief thing? Um, I, I see where he's coming from, and although I think a possible hiccup in that regard is like when searching for secret doors or hearing noises. There are some, especially use some of the strategic review classes. They have better, say, hearing noise, like a ranger or something, if I'm remembering it correctly than the thief so it's like do you give the thief two rolls then or you know i I don't know it's it it is a way of getting around it it's like the thief gets a freebie roll then if it blows he then gets the same roll as everyone else does i kind of like the idea that um uh failure on the roll doesn't necessarily mean the catastrophic opposite like your first little thief would you got 15 percent pickpockets so you miss that, but you you but missing it doesn't necessarily mean the guy caught you red-handed. It just means you just didn't grab anything. Right, right. <laughs> that's or, that, that's kind of cool. Or that gives him the option to then see if he detected you picking his pocket. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a better way of handling it. I mean, if you want to try to get away from the although I again, I'm may not be remembering correctly. I think there was something in one of the books that's mentioned if you're trying to remove a trap and you blow the roll, it automatically sets it off. But I won't swear to that. I'd have to go look it up. That would make anyway, sense. Anyway, it's a it's a valuable alternative method. So so thanks, JV. All right. Hey, do you guys go to JV's uh, website much? I don't go anywhere. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I go nowhere. I do nothing. Well, yeah, He's- I... He's really excellent cartoonist. I, I'm actually thinking of reaching out to him because people keep bugging me about Marvin the Mage, and I don't have time to draw it right now, but I could write it. JV? It's subcontracted out. Yeah. His, his style, I can't, I'm blanking on the guy's name. His uh, his style reminds me very much of, uh, oh, uh, damn it, uh, Von Baudet, the uh, 70s guy who uh, was in National Lampoon, did uh, Cheech the Wizard and uh, the post-apocalyptic uh, Cobalt 60. That guy. JV's stuff reminds me of him. You know, the little wizard, it's just a, a pointy wizard cap with feet sticking out. That guy. Oh, uh, okay. JV's style reminds I, me I a lot of that guy. I still the guy's name. <laughs> yeah, y'all mentioned him on the OSR gaming forums. He's just like that guy. Just like the guy we can't think of. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Okay. <clears throat> Our next is from Raul de la Garza, otherwise known as Angelic Doctor, on the forums. And he writes, hey folks, I've recorded some questions for you. Feel free to replay it on air. Thanks, DM Raul, Angelic Doctor. And we can play it now. Let's give it a listen. 
Hello, DMs, Liz, Mike, and Jim. This is DM Raul, or Angelic Doctor on the forums. I have a question, and I guess maybe it's primarily for DM Mike. I have recently acquired my own personal copy of original Dungeons & Dragons, and I couldn't be more proud. And I got to reading it, of course, and I took a look, and I saw that there were references to both outdoor survival and chainmail for miniatures combat. I'm wondering, do you actually use Outdoor Survival, or have you played it as a separate game? Also, have you also used the Chainmail rules for miniature combat, or do you rely on some other system, or do you redo miniature combat at all? Thank you very much, and have a great day! Dude, Angelic Doc's got a smooth voice. We should get him on the show. (laughs) Smooth jazz with Save or Die. (laughs) Well, I'll let, I, I, I imagine, let's let Liz answer first, because I think I know her answers. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> all the nopes. All, all of the no's. I, I don't do any of that. I, I try never to have miniature combat at all, if I can possibly avoid it. So, it's like, I'm, I'm a big help here. It's like, I don't do any of it. No, no, no. <laughs> Liz has gone bye-bye. What do you got for me, Jim? Uh, I refreshed myself on John Peterson's Playing at the World because I didn't want to give an answer that would upset John, an incorrect answer. Uh, according to John Peterson, the outdoor survival game was just uh, uh, Gary Gygax's first means of resort to deal with the wilderness campaign when the players were outside the dungeon because in OD&D, everything was focused on the dungeon exploration. So Gary basically said, go Go buy Outdoor Survival so you can steal their hex map. That's what it amounted to. Um, I came along uh, later than that, so around 79 or so, Judges Guild already had the blank hex map booklets. And our first DM just taught me how to map, and that's how I handled that. Um, I did. I never played Chainmail until like a year ago, so uh, when we... Uh, in my brother's campaign, when we had to, we did do this whole giant assault on the city. Took up a whole basement floor doing it. But I think we used the battle system rules because they had just come out then, which is mm. similar to chainmail, but more uh, new school than old school. Okay. Well, I never actually owned Outdoor Survival. I still don't actually, but uh, I borrowed it from a friend of mine in the late '70s, and I actually played it. Um, for those who aren't aware, it's basically just some maps of wilderness area with mostly trees, but you've got some rocks or a stream, that sort of stuff. And your goal is you're supposed to keep yourself alive in the wilderness until you make it to civilization sort of thing or get rescued. And I seem to recall one of the books that came with the game was what amounted to a Boy Scout primer on different types of plants and and uh, how to make lean-tos and that sort of thing in the game, Um, though it applied to real life. So Liz was suggesting that maybe they were trying to get gamers to go outside or something. (laughs) (laughs) You can camp with this book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For the early 70s, that was a radical game because it wasn't based on any kind of, you know, assault on Beston or anything. (laughs) Oh yeah, it was, it it was like a peaceful game where you're, you're just trying to not game. get lost. Is the goal? <laughs> yeah. Don't get don't get lost. Don't die of dehydration <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, no, it's it was pretty cool, and I did use the map a few times. Though I curiously, I never actually used it for D and D. I used it for aftermath. Interesting. Uh, FGU's um, post-apoc game, 
Yeah, I used that. What I did use for D&D were the maps for Squad Leader. Huh. Particularly the village, the village map. So, it's like, wow. Yeah, so... As for miniatures, back in the day, my group generally used a free set of medieval miniature rules that was published in Wargamer's Digest sometime in the mid-late 70s. And we just house-ruled it for fantastic creatures. We never actually used chainmail. Dude, you're something like 10 years younger than me, and I just have to snap you the old guard salute for that stuff. <laughs> I just, I, as I've said before, I was lucky to fall into a, a group of, you know, 30-something dyed-in-the-wool fantasy and war gamers. So I got exposed to, you know, not only D&D, Traveler, lots of other role-playing games. I got Avalon Hills, Squad Leader, Panzer Blitz, Gettysburg, all that stuff at the same time. So You're just more wargamey than me. Our first DM that introduced me to D&D was a huge Avalon Hill guy, and he stomped my little butt once at Squad Leader, and I was done. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> oh, I got my butt stomped all the time. I was like 12 or 13, but... Yeah, I, I was horrible at them, but I I liked the games. But of course, as a history guy, I you know, I do kind of lean to that sort of thing. So sorry, Angelic Doctor, Raul. I hope that answers your stuff. Ah. <laughs> and and okay, I think this is our last email for today, and it is from Dave Bledsoe, who is Dave the Moderate on the various forums. Um, Hi, Dave. And he writes, Hello from the year 2015, which, based on the current email bag, was a long time ago. Uh (laughs) Are there flying cars when you are reading this email? (laughs) I kid, I kid. (laughs) Actually, there are flying cars. There's lots of flying cars, especially when they go over overpasses. It's the landing that tends to be the problem. Dude, there's so much snow and ice in Ohio this week, my car almost flew. It definitely glided. The Miata, yeah. Miata does not deal with this weather. <laughs> Was listening to episode 104, Tavern Hopping, where you were discussing some of the more interesting things that come up using a character generator online. I love these for the interesting role-playing opportunities they provide. An agoraphobic druid, afraid to go outside? Talk about a challenge to your faith. The paladin, is a, <laughs> the paladin is a kleptomaniac. Well, what if he only stole from evil and gave to the church? He would still want to steal everything, but couldn't. <laughs> if it wasn't, um, if it was, I mean, to me, kleptomania would by definition mean you stole. It was not under your control. But I do see the point. <laughs> The stranger the quirk, the happier I am. I love using these for my zero levels in DCC. Give the soon-to-be-deceased a touch of color before their inevitable messy demise. (laughs) Well, thanks, Liz and guys. Good night. Good work. I'll most likely kill your characters in the morning. (laughs) Just call me the Dread Dungeon Master Roberts. (laughs) Dave Bledsoe a.k.a. Dave the Moderate on the OSR forums, where I don't go often enough. Seriously, there are flying cars, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But if there were, most drivers we've dealt with on the roads, do we want them with flying cars? (laughs) No. Oh, come on. He'll be totally worth it. 
I, I, I don't even care if my car flies. I just want it to make that noise. <laughs> make the Jetson sound. <laughs> All right. And if anyone wants to send us emails, where do they send it, Jim? Can I jump in with the Facebook post? Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, it's not technically an email, but it was a Facebook post that I thought was worth uh, sharing from uh, Jim Ward. Uh, because it concerns a little D&D history that I personally was unaware of. This past week, uh, Jim put up a post about deities and demigods, and he says, Let me set the record straight on this again. I wrote the book Deities and Demigods with some slight help from others. In doing this work, I included myths from H.P. Lovecraft's works and Elric of Melbourne Moorcock works. Gary Gygax gave me Michael Moorcock's address, and I wrote him for permission and got it because I said it would renew people's interest in the books. I wrote to Arkham House, which was in my state of Wisconsin, and also got the rights to Lovecraft's material. Going forward, both groups subsequently sold their rights to Chaosium in California. Then lawyers from Chaosium uh, sent a cease cease and desist letter to TSR. TSR had the permissions I gave them, but they had no money for lawyers at the time. So Brian Bloom decided to take out those two sections. I just thought that was really, set the record straight, interesting little history from a primary source that was there at the time. Because I always heard it the, uh, a slightly different version of that. Mm-hmm. Me too. Uh, That's not what it says on the Wikipedia page for these demigods, for example. Yeah. You mean Wikipedia is wrong? That's right. That's right. <laughs> no. But as far as regenerating interest, I know I, I had never heard of Lankmer or the Elric series. Or for Lovecraft, for that matter, until I read Deities and Demigods. Interesting. Yeah, so, that's, that's the yeah. same with me, too. I had never heard of them. So, definitely got my interest. Well, I just thought that was worth sharing. Yeah, no, that's cool. And Send me the link so I can put that in the show notes. Okay. And if somebody wants to email, how would they do it? Jim? Uh, they would send that email to saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. Or call our voice line at 940-536-3763. Threesod! Now I have sads. <laughs> Liz well, is already going down the dusty road. Well, I, I am going down the dusty well, road. <laughs> before you do, uh, yes. let me just get a couple of quick announcements. Then we'll go into break and go right into Gazapalooza. Uh, just a couple of things. I want to shout out for a a campaigns and house rules forum that has recently been formed for classic D&D hmm. where they talk about specifically setting up vari- campaign variants and house rules variants so if you're a buy the book person it may not be for you but i one of the things i find about the classic D&D community that i really enjoy is there's a much more live and let live personality to the classic D&D, or they don't get quite so hung up on rules interpretations, which is nice. So what you're saying is if you're a by-the-book DM, this forum is not for you. But if you're a good DM, please go to it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. But uh, And on a final note, doesn't it figure our very last issue of Gygax Magazine, number five, we actually got without having to bug anyone. That's right. It came to us, no problem. I didn't have to ask where it was or anything. It was amazing. So, so hopefully this means that they're getting themselves on track with 
with the issues being sent out and stuff. And since it, they fixed it, no doubt, because they listened to Save or Die. Oh, sure. It was, it was just <laughs> us. <laughs> we appreciate it. I will recuse myself from comment except to say that John Peterson had a really good article on that issue. Okay, I've yet to read it, so um, I'll have to give that a look. All right, well, let's hear some incredibly important public announcements, and then we'll say bye to Liz, and uh, we'll head into top five. Bye, Liz. Bye. Bye, bye. Challenge your imagination to come alive and to battle with the creatures of Dungeons and Dragons. Grapple against the forces of evil as a Marvel Comics superhero. Hunt adventure and glory as Indiana Jones. The all-new role-playing games of TSR and Dungeons and Dragons. Unleash the power of your imagination. The Save or Die Top 5. In 5, 4, 3... Top five for Gazetteer 2, Emirates of Alarum. <laughs> okay, I, I want to try and learn to say it correctly, and you sound like you've got it. So it's Emirates of Irlarum? Aler- well, yeah. Of course, that's how my synthesizer pronounces it. So Irlar- whether it's Irlarum? right or not. I'm going to go with Alarum. So, what first impressions? Um, my first impression, I, I'm going to struggle with this, Mike. I got to tell you up front because my uh, general philosophy in being in critiquing these things on the show is if I can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. But if I stuck to that for this one, I would only be able to say I like the Clyde Caldwell cover and the yellow watermark was slightly less annoying on every page floating behind the text than the blue one was in Gazetteer One. And that's what's those are the two good things I can say about this Gazetteer. What's the uh watermark image in this one um two crossed scimitars but it's in yellow so it doesn't like you know pop out so much from behind the text yeah i noticed this one converted for me a lot better than the caramigos (laughs) your your ocr software was actually able to ocr yeah all right well you want to go first or me um I've got a feeling because this thing has 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 got some legitimate uh, historical context infused in the fantasy that you probably enjoyed it more than I did. I absolutely loathed it. It is a combination of almost everything I personally dislike about campaign settings in general. I mean, it's got complex complex backstories with unpronounceable names, world histories that no one cares about and don't affect gameplay, um, exclusively human centric societies. Um, needless replacement flavor text. You know, paragraph devoted to the monetary exchange is a dinar, but it's the same as a gold piece. Well, if it's the same as a gold piece, we're playing D&D. Why can't it just be a gold piece? (laughs) (laughs) That's my start. That's my opening salvo. (laughs) Okay. My opening salvo. I'm not sure how much of it I would use, um, but I think if I had to do some Middle Eastern uh, stuff in my campaign, I would at least take a gander through it to get some ideas i found it of rather more value than say caramicos but that may and in full disclosure here it may be because i'm not that familiar with middle eastern culture so i feel like i'm getting more information for my buck out of this book on the other hand i 
imagine that the vast majority of D&D players are from Europe, North America, or Japan, you know, so this would be a culture that we're not very familiar with. And with that, I'll start with number five, unless you wanted to say something. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question, though. Um, how, how would you compare uh, this to a uh, setting like Al-Kadim? I don't know. I've never looked at Al-Kadim. It's not that I completely hate campaign settings. I just want my campaign settings to be done well and uh, use a light touch. Provide me with the information and background I need to run a game in that campaign setting without 10 pages of you know world history about the setting. Does that make sense? Because <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's but- what has upset me so much about this. This is, this is a whole book that's written as like the classic DM uh, mistake of I've created this huge, vast, and complex world present to my players when nobody at the table cares they just want to go kill some monsters and explore a dungeon and have and yet and have an adventure and yet there are lots of people who enjoy in- intricately detailed campaigns i mean forgotten realms is a perfect example i don't obviously you don't but you know obviously you know, somebody's buying this stuff i don't know. Well, I mean, your mileage may vary, and and if you enjoy something, that's great with me. I have no problem with it. it just so I don't sound like a complete, you know, uh, downer on this campaign. An example of campaign settings that have been written that I've played that I enjoyed were like uh, Michael Curtis just released one with the Chain Coffin DCC box set. That's this whole campaign setting called the Shutter Mountains, and Mike does exactly everything right. He gets in there and gives you. A few paragraphs of background information, a hex map that's annotated with, uh, you know, adventure hooks. It's the single best uh, piece of advice I've ever gotten on how to write these games to begin with is that every, uh, this came from Joseph Goodman, that every paragraph, if possible, whether it's uh, exposition text or monster stats, should contain some kind of gaming plot hook that the DM or judge can use. Does that make sense? Yeah, um... When I first started writing Castles and Crusades modules for Troll Lord Games, one of their house stock things that they, you know, everybody had to do is say in a 24-page module, half of it had to be the setting, the background, the local villages or farms or whatever. And that drove me nuts because normally when I write adventures or something, maybe a third to a quarter of it is the setting at most. I'm far more concerned with the adventure locales itself rather than the you know, peripheral aspects of wherever you're gaming. But, you know, I, again, your mileage may vary, I suppose. But speaking well, on my history... Let's talk well, about the parts you enjoyed before I get back to blasting it some more. Okay, my number five... I like how the author managed to create one quote-unquote Arabic area and managed to put every flavor of Middle Eastern culture in the different emirates. So you have choices. Each of the emirates, you've got one that reflects, say, Ottoman Turkey, another one which is Persia, another which is Babylon. You've got what amounts to you know Mongolians who follow the path, which is which is a good way of covering those uh, Central Asian stands. You, you've got this exciting culture based on ancient Egypt that fell thousands of years before the players get to the campaign setting. Yeah, yeah, and 
has been kind of corrupted. And you've got even areas that uh, Thyatis and Alphasia took as colonies, which kind of reflect the, you know, Persian slash Byzantine cultures, which is kind of cool too. That way you can have, say, a Lebanon or a Syria or, you know, any of these different areas. And I like the way he managed to work it in there so that no matter what kind of Middle Eastern character you have in your mind, you can probably cover it in one of these places. Well, I'm going to agree with you to the extent that this is dense with really good uh, anthropological and cultural data that's just got a fantasy veneer on top of it, but it's historically based. It's it's deep, it's complex, and it's well-researched. It's also boring to me. <laughs> and I... I uh, did some research on this because I knew I was going to get all up on my high horse about it. And uh, Ken Rolston, the guy who wrote it, has written a lot of great stuff and also some popular computer games. I mean, he worked at Chaosium on basic role-playing. He uh, was like the fourth author to come in and make Paranoia really, really fun. He's got... He's wrote Stormbringer and Superworld. He's got some credits. So I'm not willing, based on what I read in this gazetteer, to heap all the blame on him. It's it's because this came out in '87. It sounds to me like he got art directed to do this in this direction. I mean, '87 would be after Frank Mincer and Gary were both already gone. Mm-hmm. And Tui was about to come out. Forgotten Realms was replacing Greyhawk as the core world. That's right. And and of course, novels after Dragonlance, novels became big. And well, what do you do? You make incredibly intricate worlds so that you can write novels about them. But anyway, so that's your five? Well, yeah. In, in terms of content, I mean, this thing makes Karamikos look like Greyhawk. I was really uh, astonished at the lack of gaming and medieval fantasy-based content. Not Nothing to do with the culture itself. I mean, there's no... Unless I miss them, there are no demi-humans in this setting. Is that what you got? I, I didn't come across. At most, you have kind of the corrupted descendants of Nithia. But yeah, no actual demi-humans. I mean, they mentioned in passing how demi-humans might be treated right. if they came to the Emirates. But no, I don't recall coming across any. I'm totally breaking the format. So tell me, tell me when it's my top four thing. And we'll just we'll, we'll slug all my prior bitching into my five. Okay. Uh, four, my four... I'll get in a little criticism here, too. It's the usually politically correct religion without being a religion, prophet without having a prophet. Oh, right. And no gods, it's immortals from the immortal Yeah, and, and no slavery, except they kind of have an indentured servitude, which seems to me kind of trying to shiny, happy medieval Muslim culture and... I, I that bugs me. I mean, no culture is all good or all bad. You've got the good and bad aspects of it. I mean, if medieval Europe has its peasant serfs, then you should mention slavery a little more detailed than it is here. So that bugged me a little. Well, it, that would be back to my point because that absolutely was written that way because that was the editorial directives of of the time. Right, and I. I understand why he did it that way. I don't agree with it, but I do understand. It's funny when in D&D you just take one little bolt out and a whole house of cards of other things and mechanics can start to fall. Um, My number four objection to the Emirates of Irulurum is uh, the uh, lack of magic. I mean, you get one 
uh, additional class, the Desert Druid or the Dervish, mm-hmm. and who has some spectacular new clerical spells like Detect Water and Poetic Inspiration and Truth Telling and No Destiny. These are not spells that make me want to play a Desert Druid. <laughs> I don't know. If you're pl- playing in, in the desert area, det- you know, finding water could really be helpful. But yeah, um, I'm sorry. I'm gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna be a total bastard on this episode. I can't help it. I do think one of the things, and this is my third, I will say, is it seems to really encourage people, players, to come up with backstory and role playing for their characters. I mean, they give rules on how you know. The traditions of hospitality, how to deal with you know honor, and that sort of stuff, which I kind of like, in that it's it's especially back in 1987, it seems like it was trying to get away from the kill crap and take their stuff. Not that there's anything wrong with kill crap and take their stuff, but sometimes you want to do something else. Well, I, I can agree completely with that because if you took if if the rest of the things I was having problems with weren't there, then that's that's. Uh, judging DMing gold right there. Okay, your players have come to this land from wherever they came from. They weren't born here. Here are the rules you better start learning if you don't want to fight every time you turn around. And if it's a campaign setting that you're starting in, here's what's expected of you. That's good stuff. Yeah. And as a side note, before the Lost City would be would fit in really well in this region, especially around the Nithians. But Yeah, I think that's actually mentioned in the back of the Gazetteer in the at the very back where it's like suggesting uh, basic D&D modules that would go well with this. Yeah, they also recommended a D&D ones, which I found amusing. Um, the Desert of Desolation series, they recommended where to put them in, which I can't decide if that's you know cool and that it's showing that there really isn't that much difference between the games, guys, or it's 2E creep. That as the gazetteers go on, I've heard you're going to see more and more. Well, that just makes sense. Yeah, and two two is an okay system. Um, but yeah, and on the very last paragraph of the entire thing is a little appendix N ish reference where it says one last suggestion: Frank Herbert's Dune series of science fiction novels has just the right flavor of desert warrior cultures, striking characters, and high tech magical devices to adapt to fantasy role playing adventures in Irulurum. Exactly. Why wasn't that stuff in the Gazetteer to begin with? Yeah. Why can't we have? Uh, can't even have worm sign. I mean, there's just, there's no, you know, it should have like, you know, a monstrous purple worm or something that lurks in the deserts, whatnot, that you can use. Kind of a desert equivalent of the, the Rakhasha, was that? From, yeah, 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 yeah. From AD&D? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cold, make one for the desert for here. Yeah, that could have worked. But they didn't. So that's your three? Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm overheating my brain trying to think of something positive to say about this. <laughs> Um, so, uh, your two then. Two is I like, and again, this may get off the cultural issue, but I like the more historical accuracy of it. I Most of the towns, even the major towns in this, have much more reasonable population numbers, like 15,000, 20,000 for a major population center, which in the Middle Ages, unless you're talking Constantinople, makes perfect sense. It's far more plausible. I also like in that they give the 
you know, suggestions on how to resolve various skills. You know how much I love skills. But, for instance, they're talking about how to do writing, and it's it deals with the 3D6, 4D6 method I've started to use rather than using a D20 against an attribute. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To a number of D6. They, they mentioned it here, which I think may be the first time, certainly in Gazetteers. I don't think it mentioned it in Karamikos. So I like that. Um, there's some other th- goodies in here that could be useful. There's a storytelling chart for when you're trying to tell tales for entertainment. That could be great for a bard class you could use. Oh, but see, that's... The, the, the XPs, the XP chart, the storytelling chart awards your character XPs for how well a story he tells. I mean, yeah. it's a storytelling game. You're already getting XPs for telling the story of your character. Not if you're not killing stuff. Well, the, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's player character 101. You have to spin the story about how you got half murdered in this dungeon as some heroic tale that where you were uber smart at every turn. <laughs> yeah, but I mean... Let's face it, we have all sat with people who tell us stories about their character, and you're trying to think of a way to fake a stroke so you can get out of listening to the guy. Um, there's good and bad ways of telling stories. And, you know, it, in a culture like this where the art of storytelling is so respected, I think having a mechanism, even a chart, which I'm normally not a huge fan of charts, but I like the it having that th- that sort of resolution. And if you don't want to give XPs to them, that's fine. You know, just um, have that as a percentage effect of you know, a morale modifier or reaction modifier for people. You know, when this character deals with them instead of the XPs. I'm I'm with you in spirit because I'm old school. I, I I'll drop a table in every other paragraph when I'm writing something, but that storytelling chart, I just. It's lame. It's a whole mechanic for something I don't care about. Okay. So what's your two? Or was your two bashing my two? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm not bashing your two. I know. I know. I'm just playing. I'm just um, – I'm, I'm having such a problem with this because just the spirit and approach that's written in is 180 degrees to my personal taste in gaming. And I'm the first one to say there's not a right or wrong way. If you and your party – or, or players are sitting down and having a ball using this campaign setting. And I'm sure somewhere on the planet there's people who have done that. Write us and tell us about it. That's super shiny with me. I just uh, want high heroic fantasy in my D&D. This, this thing is written as, as almost antithetical to the spirit of D&D as a game. What I mean about that, uh, you're gonna, somewhere on your list has got to be the rules for uh, how to deal with uh, the desert rules, how to deal with heat exhaustion, lack of water. Um, I, so am I going to steal that from you if I talk about it? No, go ahead. Um, it's it's uh, kind of a basic, not great mechanic to deal with something that in most campaign settings I would ignore as a DM. Unless the players were just being ridiculously stupid. To, to compare and contrast... Uh, a couple years ago, Tim Cask ran for a year his OD&D world for us as a campaign, not one-off adventures like at a con. And uh, the part of his world of Makanda we were in was the desert part. And Tim infused it with uh, high fantasy at every turn. We were out collecting shards of magic glass from some mythical meteor strike that blanketed the desert a thousand years ago. You know, we were getting jumped by these giant sand cats. 
there were obviously there were dungeons out in the middle of the desert that we got to go into. That or you were in a really big sandbox. Um, we he I mean he he played us. You know we 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 got uh, kicked out of a town for uh, what do you call it when you're hanging around unemployed. Vagrancy? Yeah, yeah. We got kicked out of a town for vagrancy, <laughs> and our only option to obey the law was to sign up to guard a caravan going across the desert, you know? Okay, that's another good idea of making your PCs take a plot hook. Any plot hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tim, you know, Tim's been doing this a while. He's got some chops. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun, and it was just the opposite of the spirit of this thing. This, as well-researched as it is, I mean, it's just not D&D. It's got the thinnest of fantasy. I I I, I gotta to it. I gotta disagree with you. I I think you know it just because say like you said, Tim's been doing this a long time. A relatively new person says, "I think it'd be cool to run a thousand and one nights kind of campaign. That'd be awesome." But I don't know jack about the Middle East, so this would be a good thing that would not only give you a cultural. You know, reflection of the campaign world, but it tells you the stuff that's critical insofar as running a game. Whereas, yeah, I mean, sure, you can well, go to the library and read a history of the middle, you know, the medieval Middle East, but it's going to give you a lot of stuff that may be important to academics, but not to a DM. Mike, you ignorant slut. No, actually, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. If your goal was to, we're going to sit down and play D and the, the great thing about Dungeons and Dragons. Obviously, because it's what happened, is that the system is flexible enough to encompass a huge variety of milieus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and things that I consider egregious sins of omission in this gazetteer, other people wouldn't. Um, so that's great. If your goal was, if you, if you and your players would enjoy sitting down and playing a version of D&D that was low magic, human-centric, and based on a Far East or Middle Eastern cultural set of norms, this is perfect for you. And that's me. Okay, I'm not that interested in the Middle Eastern culture in my campaigns, but I do have a part of my home, my uh, homebrew world that's you know Middle Eastern, and if characters ever went there, I might very well pick this up to, to give some flavor to things. On the other hand, if you wanted to do the thing you said, okay, we're going to play D&D, but we want it to be Arabian Nights D&D, then you'd go to Al-Kadim. Where there's all kinds of demi humans and character so classes and me, new magic. It's less the historical or cultural accuracy that bugs me, it, or bugs you, and more that they emphasize the wrong things. You think they should have emphasized more medium or high magic stuff, like you said, a bunch of monsters, uh, new magic items. In you know, part, there's a couple, but in part, the main thing that bugged me about this is it just bored me. I mean, I was. Eight pages into it before I came across a paragraph that affected the game I would run from it. Eight pages. <laughs> yeah, I think I recall the whole thing was kind of like the Muhammad, whose name escapes me at the moment. Was it Suleiman? Uh, like his tale was like the first eight pages. Yeah, I must have been. I kind of skimmed that a bit myself. I mean, like everything, there's there's little nuggets in there of gold that you could dig out. That whole thing about the eternal truth. And 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 the the articles of faith. If you live in this culture, how do you, like you were saying, just everything from you know you better say hello to the guy by offering him a drink of water from your canteen, or it's a fight. That's that's gold right there. Don't extend your left hand right. to shake hands. Yeah, um, it it's got some good stuff. Uh, although I will say my favorite one, we're to number one then, 
It's got a page and a half on rumors <laughs> and what what conventional wisdom is by people outside of the Emirates on the Emirates, which is basically makes it rumors. Um, if Liz were part of this, she would love that to death. I thought it was great because it gave a whole lot of things, and some of them were true, some of them were not. Some of them really up to you to decide. Well, they were good. Those rumor tables were good. The maps were great. Yep, that village. You know, if you're going to run, I like how they gave a sample village. I don't know that it necessarily needed to take up what twenty pages for one village. I do like that they gave you a detailed on a quote unquote typical medieval Middle Eastern village because it's going to be a lot different than a typical medieval European village. Yeah, but yeah, I do think they spent a little too much time on that. They could have done that in 10 to 12 pages and then put the rest with new monsters and magic items. I knew you were going to like this more than me, but I didn't realize we'd it's be so this weird. far apart. Yeah, it's so weird. Normally I'm the hard ass, so it's it's really weird. I'm outside my comfort zone here. I don't know what to do. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, everybody's allowed to like what they like. I, you know, my idea of imagine if this exact campaign setting had been written and published by Judges Guild. Imagine what Judges Guild would have infused in there. Oh yeah, it'd have been a lot more Gonzo. I mean, the court system where you're getting your hand chopped off for looking at a high lady. You know, crazy stuff in there. And that's, I'm just, you know, I'm of my age and taste. That's the kind of stuff I like. Yeah. Well, I did notice that when it was giving the court system and the fines and punishments for various crimes, lewdness was at the top. The very first thing they covered. Really? <laughs> Do you expect this a lot? What? See, that would be good for visiting player characters. Okay, suddenly your you know, 18-strength female paladin has to wear a veil across her helmet. And don't show excessive skin. Right. Which is basically any skin. Except maybe hands. And it, but again, they, they de-emphasized the gender issues of medieval culture, which Mi- Middle Eastern medieval culture, which, you know, I, they de-emphasized it in the European medieval culture in Karamikos. So I can't really fault them for that. So what's your number one? Uh, my number one is lack of reference to Appendix N literature. Which is part of what is just, you know, raising the hair on the back of my neck. This is a very historically based, but otherwise neutral presentation of Far Eastern cultures or Middle Eastern cultures. You know what I mean? As opposed to uh, Jeffrey Talnanian's, I can't pronounce his name. I'm sorry, Jeffrey, I can't pronounce your name. Jeff Talanian? Yeah, that guy. Astonishing Swordsmen and Saucers of Hyperborea has got a desert region in it, and it's all based on Robert E. Howard. Um, Michael Curtis's Shutter Mountains, I was just talking about, is of all bizarre things, a medieval fantasy appellation setting, but it's based on uh, Manly Wade Wellman's writings. Do you hear banjos? I think I hear banjos. Oh, hey, I gotta tell you, coming on, a, <laughs> coming up on a cabin of hillbilly giants was fun, you know. <laughs> and 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 even uh, Rolston cites Dune at the end, which some of that could have been brought to this. Yeah, I, that's that's said- that, that's the missing element that just. Yeah, when me. you said Appendix N, I was stopping to think, okay, what Appendix N stuff would I put in there? Yeah, uh, Howard did a little. Um, Surely Fawford and the Grey Mouser went to a desert land. Yeah, I'm, I'm think that's exactly, our minds are the same thing. It's like, surely they went to at least one. The King of Kings, I think it was, his land, but I, 
I can't remember if they went to it or not, or they just referred to it in passing. I've mostly just read the Elric books, but one of those internal champions has got to have gone to a desert somewhere. Yeah. Hawkmoon, or if not uh, Elric. And the Arabian Nights tales themselves. I mean, that's, oh, absolutely. that's full of yeah. ba- badass genies and all kinds of magic flying around. I mean, you want to... And it's weird because normally if I criticize anything about Mistara is it I feel like it's too high magic. But I agree, this setting is low magic, really. I mean they have sorcerers, but the only limitations to them is they have to, you know, dress special so that everyone knows you're a sorcerer. You can't basically be in undercover mode. Okay, but where's James L. James L. Oh, God. James Earl Jones? Yeah, that guy. James Earl Jones. Where's James Earl Jones, you know, with his snake priest, you know, trying to take over the whole land? Yeah, yeah, no, that could that could be something here. Um, they did give a lot of politics, particularly over the two groups, the preceptors and the kin, which is, an, again, a non-religious reflection of Sunni and Shia Islam, which I thought was kind of cool, but, you know, again... It is cool, and it was written in a time when you could do that without causing a fuss. Yep, yep. Which would happen now, unfortunately. Heck, you can't, you're not even supposed to use the term Oriental anymore, and TSR put out Oriental Adventures. I mean, hey. Right, right. All right. <laughs> Any other thing you've, you want to say about this? Um, well, other than everything I shared uh, the past hour, I kinda, it was okay. <laughs> okay. It didn't, it didn't cause my brain to bleed or anything. Well, tell you what, let's go into random encounters to cover uh, Nathan, Scraterthal, and the ghoul, and the gnome. Ghoul. I, that was probably just hopeful thinking on my part. There is, there is only Thule. And then we'll go into products of your imagination to make our grade, maybe, after you've, we, we've, we can cool down and look at it a bit more objective. <laughs> Are you going to take me out back off air and let me have it? No. <laughs> How many people want to kick some ass? There are, there are seven ogres surrounding you. How could they surround us? I had Morton Titan's magical watchdog cat. No, you didn't. A satanic fungus rises from the forest floor and says, You're playing D&D. You're playing D&D. This whole apartment is playing D&D. Random encounter. All right, random, random encounters. encounters. And since Liz isn't here, you get the reading job. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> A cornucopia of efficacious mispronunciations yeah. will we'll be coming forthwith. <laughs> Early this afternoon, I was toying with the idea of her using the MP3 recorder on her computer to just record her voice reading the stuff, and then you could cut and splice it in <laughs> afterwards. Liz so I thought it would confuse people. So, Liz is such a trooper. Well, uh, Nathan Bouvier uh, submitted, and we promised last episode we'd share uh, two things to the podcast: a creature and a, a basic D and D character class that's a race as class, which I really think is interesting. Um, the uh, monster is called the Greater Thule, uh, and in the flavor text it says the Queen from B twelve, creator and distributor of the Thule, felt that for her person. Personal protection. Creator and distributor. That's right. <laughs> it's not like she owns a, a, a marketing house or you know, something. Making them yourself is easier than shipping them in from China. Uh, <laughs> she felt that for her personal protection, she needed something stronger and able to last longer in a fight so she would have more time to escape. So with the greater Thule, 
more of a troll essence was used and less hobgoblin. Like the Thule, the, the creation worked, though it takes much longer to create, so there are only limited numbers of them, most serving as guards for the queen herself. And uh, it's got a paralysis touch like a ghoul with a claw strike uh, and regenerates two hit points around. And uh, uh, three or four of those, first or second level, I wouldn't want to run into them. Cool. Yeah, we'll have this as a link in the show notes where you can actually get the full write-ups. Full stats and everything. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I'm always good for greater versions of of quote-unquote standard monsters because everybody's like, oh yeah, it's a thull. It's just, it's, it. it's just a parakeet. No, it's a dire parakeet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ah! Did you see that on Liz's Facebook page? Yeah, Where, yeah. <laughs> Giant death parakeet. I forgot to ask Chase what he thought about it, since he was the one that inflicted them on us. But anyway, I'm just trying to kill time. Let's get it over with. The races class gnome. It's not so bad, Mike. It's really not. Uh, uh, Nathan wrote, the second creation is something right up DM Mike's alley. A new version... <laughs> A new version of the gnome for Mensur Basic Rule Cyclopedia. Uh, I think you could use this in Basic T&D too. And I was, I don't know about you, but I kind of stacked and compared what he wrote to the strategic review version of a gnome. I think that was one. Was either that or a very early dragon. Okay. Um, he says, uh, I had a, a player interested who wanted a gnome, and I didn't like the more mechanical aspects of their class in Top Ballista. I'm going to keep the technology out of my fantasy type of guy. So I took cues from the elf class and based my new gnome off of a thief magic user, parentheses, illusionist class. So using the resources I had, RC and Top Ballista, I came up with the following. So the gnome racist class class uh, has standard abilities of uh, being minus one AC versus large creatures, infravision, of course, um, some small hiding in shadows, and well, of course, it's small hiding in shadows. Ah, yeah. Some, <laughs> some, some thief abilities. Open locks, find and remove traps, uh, illusionist spells, and uh, I'm looking at the spell progression break, and it's not the same as a magic user. So, as it More would be appropriate for a specialty class, a little gimped. Okay. Compared to straight magic user. Well, that, that makes sense. Uh, limited to leather armor. Uh, that's actually nice. And... Uh, Standard things you would expect. Uh, you could use daggers, short swords, uh, missile weapons. Uh, there are some prime requisites that are pretty standard. But the interesting part about it is the, kind of the combination of a few thief skills and illusionist spells. And and, okay. not, and nothing, you know, outrageous past that. Okay, so they have a, what amounts to a modified spell list of their own rather than just stock any magic user spell. Yeah. No, no, it's it, it's all illusionist spells. Okay. Um, which in basic D&D, I suppose, is a thing. Well, there was the illusionist in the strategic review. He said right. for rule cyclopedia, maybe there's an illusionist in there. I didn't think so, but maybe it just means those of the illusion school. And there's a few, there's some uh, spell-like abilities, that, perks that happen at high levels, or high levels for basic D&D. At 8th level, plus 1 versus earth-based attacks. Uh, 10th level, speak with burrowing animals, and 13th level, cast Wall of Stone once a week. Okay. So, so I guess that's getting into the idea of gnomes kind of being half-dwarf, half-halfling. Well, I will say, if I ever did allow gnomes in my campaign world, other than topas, um, 
I really liked how they portrayed kind of the wood dwarf from Paul Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. Ah, see? Um, There you go. There you go. Appendix N, see? Um, If I had to – that, I think, did a decent one because that's part of my gripe about the gnome is it just seemed like a cheap knockoff of a dwarf. Dwarf light. Yeah, dwarf light. There wasn't really anything interesting about it. Now, I'll admit when they made the Tinker Gnomes in Dragonlands, that was an attempt to make them interesting. I didn't like it, but I can't fault their attempt to at least try to give them something that makes them stand out. But hey, it'll be here, listeners, if you want to use them in your campaign. If you do, write us, tell us how they went. Or just tell us what you think. And now, products... Dungeons and Dragons. Power is won by finding new ways to battle. I can feel the darkness inside me. And being completely dragon flapping awesome. Set comes with spellbook, ritual rites, playboard, sacrificial dagger, and dice, dice, dice. TSR Hobbies Dungeons and Dragons game. Products of your imagination. I won't say Poyi because Liz isn't here. <laughs> Except you just did. Except I just did. Yeah, <laughs> edit that out, would you? <laughs> uh, make it worth my while. No, just mm. kidding. All right, format and layout. That's all on you because Liz isn't here. So, uh, format and layout standard for the Gazetteers. It was a handsome product in its time. We've gone on and on about the watermark on every page, but beyond that, mm. it's fine. Three column layout. Uh, nice Clyde Caldwell uh, cover art and uh, nice maps in the back. That uh, reading the credits, I think probably were Dave Sutherland's work, as he was one of the graphic designers listed in the credits. They look like Dave's stuff. I'm not sure Dave could do bad stuff. So <laughs> normally, is it? It's Dave Sutherland. Okay, it's good. Well, especially ah. nice when you consider the tools of the time. They don't have. They didn't have. You know, 1987. They didn't have computers like we have now. Yeah. I mean, it was just the dawn of desktop publishing, and, you know, you get those lovely dot matrix printers. and Nobody had hexographer on their computer back then. Oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I believe it is available for purchase on D&D Classics as a PDF. Because um, I purchased it for, so I could read it for this podcast. <laughs> eh, how much you pay for it? Uh, a whole $4.24. See? There you go. So Which is... Hard to go wrong, even if you just want to collect them. Yeah. Now, getting the original hard copies, that's going to be a bit more expensive. I think I've seen them for like $20, $25 on eBay or other such you know, used game locations. I did not check that as I usually do, but I will check that while you're talking. Okay. Again, I, I think part of what I liked, I've mentioned most of my likes and dislikes, but... This Gazetteer is only 65 pages, which I think is a good sweet spot for enough pages to talk about a region, but not get into grotesque amounts of detail. I know you disagree with me on that, but that's kind of how I feel about it. I, I don't Nothing disagree. That, I don't disagree with you. I just don't enjoy it like you do. Okay. Yeah. You're you're right. Well, it depends. If it's well done and interesting, I enjoy it. If it's just 300 pages worth of, you know, made-up names and made-up leaders doing made-up things made-up number of years ago. It's dull, 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 dull. But I like this. So, did you look it up? 
Yes, um, easily attainable on eBay uh, for thirty bucks. If you want to get like a pristine, still sealed in the shrink wrap copy, it's going to be about fifty. All right, you ready for some dragons then? Or you want to take a final shot before we? No, no, no. No. Um, I'm going to give this uh, one and a half dragons and Ouch. zero dungeons. No, no, no wistfulness in this product for me personally whatsoever. Wow. Well, I'm going to give it three and a half dragons because it's on the upper level of average for me. Although I, your mileage may vary if you're reading this or listening to this, because if you know more about the Middle East, at least the medieval Middle East than I do, you might find it a little more tedious. And I'll say two dungeons because I, I never really dealt with the gazetteers. So, I mean, I never even started reading them until the show. I, I looked at the Orcs of Thar a few years ago when I was considering allowing monster PC classes in my game. But beyond that, I hadn't really looked at them. Well, you know so, what this would be perfect for is, I mean, if you, if you decide, like, uh, Chase decided suddenly in the middle of your 2E game, he wanted to run Spelljammer and started doing that. So if, if you were in that position playing basic or AD&D, you'd probably go get al and do a whole al campaign. But if you were just wanting to send your players on a one- or two-time short campaign to a setting like this, this would be ideal for that. A lot of mm-hmm. background information, and you can juice it up. Just because it's not in the book doesn't mean you can't do it. And on a side note, the uh, first campaign I played with uh, Chase um, when we were uh, on Forgotten Realms, he, for a group of halflings, he stole a lot of info from the Five Shires Gazetteer. Oh. So, get to that, I'll be talking about that more. And we are going to get to them. We're, we'll try to make sure it's not quite so late as it was this time between shows, but we, we do plan to cover them. Unless we are brutally murdered. Well, which one's next? What's number three? Are we doing them chronologically? Uh, Principalities of Glantry. And that's probably going to be because people also want us to do the X series, and we still need to cover under Attack of the Clones, Basic Fantasy RPG. That'll probably be about five or six episodes from now when we get back to it. But it won't be 17 again, I promise. So I'm looking at the Principalities of Glantry, and there's two magic users on the cover. So I'm thinking I'm going to like that better. Could be. And we ended up with two and a half dragons for average in dragons and dungeons is one and the desert road leading off into the deserts of Ilarum or New Mexico not really sure because you've been to a desert it's a desert right yeah how are you heading down the desert uh, I'm looking for a magic lamp like crazy so I can get the genie out of it and wish myself to a more interesting setting <laughs> While I try well, not to lose one constitution point uh, temporarily per hour, I don't drink water. <laughs> well, I would be, um, but I am desperately trying to learn the detect water spell because I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. We'll see you guys at 106. See ya. Pre-arc. And we're out. Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bank.
were provided by the Yalara Ministry of Tourism and Al Kaleem's Bedouin and Breakfast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. I've got six for the top five in case we overlap something. So, although sounds like we're not going to overlap anything. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I didn't do a top five. I have like a uh, top eight complaints. <laughs> <laughs> My top five complaints about the module. Well, yeah, I think one or two of mine is a complaint too. But uh, anyway, we'll we'll figure it out. Go, 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 go,